You're listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Welcome to the Experience Sikhi podcast. I'm Dilraj Singh. We begin the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here, and we thank all the generations of people who have been who have taken care of the land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the traditional territory of the Semiamu, Katsi, Coquitlam, Kwantlen, Kakite, and Swasin First Nations. Also, just some reminders. If you guys like the podcast, please remember to comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also send us questions and feedback at podcast at experienceakey.com. Once again, that's podcast at experienceakey.com. Our guest today is Bharamveer Singh. Bharamveer Singh was born and raised in Vancouver, BC. He was able to complete his bachelor's in behavioral neuroscience, master's in counseling, As of 2020, he practices as a registered clinical counselor with his own private practice, Atlas Counseling. He has been blessed to have been surrounded by Gursiks throughout his life and continues to learn from them each and every day. In his spare time, you'll find him playing anything from basketball to board games to FIFA on PlayStation, in which his pro clubs team boosted a rank of top 2%, boasted, not boosted, boasted a rank of top 2% in North America. So here's Paranvi saying, Welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm just uh, listening to my own bio there. It can be a little weird sometimes, right? That happens with a lot of guests. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a lot of self-boost. But the whole goal with the podcast is essentially just allowing someone to walk through your life. Mm-hmm. So they might come across challenges or similar experiences. And maybe handle it the way you did, because at the end of the day, you're now an established professional. Yeah, I, I guess I guess so. And maybe I, I'm more keen on sharing my mistakes to let people know not okay. what what not to do. Um, so maybe there's some learning there too. We'll see. Awesome. So let's get straight into it. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself, something about your passions, your hobbies? Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. So um, like you had mentioned, I'm born and raised in, in Vancouver. Um I um, I did uh, my education uh, in different areas, uh, in different kind of uh, paths of careers. And the bio conveniently mentions only the relevant ones, mm-hmm. but I also had a short uh, gig with accounting and uh, some other stuff that are a little unconventional. So if you, if you zoomed out and looked at the roadmap of my career, you might be scratching your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, part of what I like to explain sometimes to people. Um, that is not always a straight line. So uh, a little bit about me, as you'll find, is lots of ups and downs, curveballs. Um, sometimes even those passions might not add up. You've mm-hmm. got a guy who's playing FIFA on PlayStation, yep. um, also likes his athletics, you know, a little bit of this and that. Overall, I'd say I like to kind of try new things, even though it means I'm not very good at them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe that's a little bit about me. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we're going to tap into your career and educational background as well. Um, but one of the purposes with this podcast is also balancing Sikhi in our careers that as professionals, we're still Amrita Sikhs 
and we try building on that each and every day. Mm-hmm. So do you want to tap into what your journey into Sikhi looked like? Was it during your childhood, your early adult years? And how did you eventually come to the decision to take Amna? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I love reflecting on this because it, it just increases the, the gratitude you, of how you got to where you were or how Maharaj allow you to get there, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's always relevant to start in childhood because for me, while Sikhi wasn't present, uh, sorry, while it was present, it wasn't present how it is now. Mm-hmm. It really evolved on its way, and I'm sure it's evolved for many other Gursikhs. Uh, but for me, the way it started was very kind of basic rat. I mean, my parents were into Sikhi. Mm-hmm. Um, but being into Sikhi versus actively practicing it, I found, can be kind of different sometimes, oh, especially sure. when you're raised as, as a young child and you're learning things and you're not quite understanding sometimes why you do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a lot of my childhood in that sense that, you know, I think it's typical in other South Asian households or Sikh households in which, you know, you've been told to do your part, told to do your mool mantar, told to keep your hair, mm-hmm. and just these other simple things, if you will, and not really told why. So I just kind of went along with it because uh, you knew it was good and you yeah. knew you'd fit in with the people around you doing it. Uh, but that didn't necessarily equate into an understanding. And sure, you can't expect a child to have that deeper understanding. Mm-hmm. Um but that in itself kind of led me astray in my kind of early uh, adolescence, if you will. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I went from a boy who was very happy to just, you know, know the 10 Guru's names, go to my Punjabi class, um, just learn these little fun facts and, yeah. and you know, have my jura on and do my thing to kind of, all right, uh, once you get into high school and others are questioning why you're doing what you're doing, it all of a sudden becomes a little reality check. Mm-hmm. And uh, while, you know, the Surrey, Vancouver, Lower Mainland area is, is prominently known for a lot of uh, sick immigrants coming yeah. in the 90s and the 80s, um, <clears throat> it didn't necessarily equate to them always being around. Yeah. Like uh, a young, as a young singer in Vancouver, um, I went to an elementary school and a high school in which there, um, there weren't many other Sikhs. Mm-hmm. I mean, even brown folks. Yeah. It was just, uh, um, they're culturally, they were sick, but I mean, they didn't really have practice it to a level that you'd see some youth practice it now, yeah. right? Um, so I got those questions, you know, why do you keep your hair? Um, why don't you eat meat? And those typical questions that you feel like if you, if you got uh, today, you'd be able to readily answer but yeah. back then oh boy mm-hmm. when you don't have an answer sometimes you look foolish yeah. and it leads to bullying and you know i think a lot of young ser- sings out there their fair sh- share of having their kind of jude yanked off i mean that was me really? <laughs> yeah yeah I, I laugh about it now because i realize the innocence behind the children who did that um, but it didn't make, make that journey any easier, of course. Yeah. So, so Sikhi was, was filled with hardships. Um, of course, I, the Sikhi in our history is always filled with hardships, but that personal one really resonated in, in, in adolescent youth, that's for sure. Um, from there, uh, I did begin to kind of 
quote unquote stray from the path. Uh, because of that questioning, it, it, the questions from people outside naturally lead to the internal doubt. Mm-hmm. So with that internal doubt uh, came the resistance for me to kind of say, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing these things. So it did lead to me, you know, trimming my beard, um, secretly eating meat. Sorry, mom and dad. I know you don't know that yet. And that's why I'm not going to share this podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those things came about just to fit yeah. in. Um, and again, there was no meaning behind why I did those things in the first place. So it felt like liberating almost to do that because I was, yeah. was kind of like, hey, well, if I didn't know what I was doing in the first place, it should be okay to be doing it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that uh, came Guru Sahib's Kirpa in the sense that being ignorant to this also led to coming back into this path, but in a very different way. Yeah. It wasn't simply just about going to the Gurdwara or seeing the same people that you do and just getting an epiphany. It was more of a, a really a big change in the on the Sangat level. Before, Sangat looked like older uncles and aunties, really. Uh, whether they're in your family or at the, at the Gurdwara, mm-hmm. um, they're just older people telling you what to do. Yeah, And there's great value in that. Like now... I I would I can listen to uncles and aunties for days because mm-hmm. you realize and understand some of the gyan they're imparting imparting on you. Yeah. Back then, not so much. Uh, back then, it was more about seeking companionship, seeking connection. Where just just where it's relatable, just where you can look at the the person next to you and say that person's doing it too. They kind of look like me. They're kind of the same age as me. Um, that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, with Guru Sahib's Kirpa, that, that's what I got through university. So just entering university, where was that, let's call it the rebellious phase? <laughs> uh, and after that was more of the kind of the awakening in, in which I was blessed to just take a plunge in, in joining the Six Students Association, just because why not? Yeah. Just to see what it was about. And um, <laughs> it's funny, when I... <laughs> When I recall the story, I always, this tidbit comes to my mind. I always remember it because it just speaks to the, the real ignorance I had then. And I saw, I saw a, supper, a couple of uh, gods th- that had the stars on. Mm-hmm. And the ignorant kid from Vancouver that I was thought, just auto-assumed, they must be from India. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people can relate to why because it's back then... It, was, it wasn't too long ago. We're still talking 10, 15 years. But for me, it was a rare sighting. Yeah. And if I saw uh, a Singhani with the star, you'd likely have seen that person before on TV or in India. So it was just, oh, she's from India. Yeah. I laugh about it because these people are my friends now. <laughs> and I tell them that story yeah. and they go, what? Um, no, there were, like, like, when I joined those discussions at the SSA, uh, these people are exactly like me. They're better mm-hmm. than me. Right, they they had this gyan. They, you, you can tell that they had this special connection with Maharaj, one that I felt like I never accessed before, uh, one in which there was more of a personal relationship with Maharaj, mm-hmm. as opposed to one that was implanted in you. Yeah, and that's where it started for me. And I remember this one kirtan divan, just listening to the youth doing kirtan. It was just a vibe that I don't. 
I don't think I've ever experienced in my life. And and just connecting to that, like like when you go to the Gordor at that younger age, you're listening to the Raggis, you have no idea what's going on. Exactly. If you're me, yeah. you don't. But you're listening to to youth doing it very passionately. Um, it just hit different. Mm-hmm. And from there, I was like, I want to be friends with these people. I want to get to know these people better. Yeah. And I want to I want to model what they're doing. So that's where I started to kind of do that more personal development in my Sikhi mm-hmm. and actually discover, wait, what is my relationship with Maharaj? Yeah. Can it be what, what these guys have? Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting um, because they would share the same teachings that you would get from those aunties and uncles when you're younger, yep. but you would digest it differently. Hmm. Right? You're hearing it from a youthful perspective. You're hearing it from someone who's gone through the same trials and tribulations that you might have when mm-hmm. you were younger. So the way you understand that is now completely different yeah. and completely relatable. Um, so that's when that kind of spark hit of, okay, there's more to this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm rambling. No, this is perfect because a lot of it is... <clears throat> especially as young six, what I've realized is when you can see someone who's achieved something you want to achieve, it tends to motivate you because you see that it's possible. Um, Mm -hmm. But no, I I think that journey for everyone, or it's important to know one another's journey because you also find Gaur Six that um, have achieved the goals that you may have set for yourself or didn't know that you wanted to set for yourself. So, for example, I was thinking when you just mentioned the the star, um, the the star thirty bbian that they probably did go through similar traumas as you, but they just had something inside of them that told them to keep pushing. Um, but no, that that's great. So right now you're in your undergrad, you've made these friends at SSA, and personally, I know taking a plunge into being blessed with Amrit is very daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, did they play a role in? expressing the importance of Amrit. How long did it take between you entering the SSA scene and then eventually, like Mara's doing enough Kepa for you to be blessed with Amrit? Oh boy, did they? <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would I would almost say Maharaj used the vessel of of those like-minded go to six almost entirely in my influence to receive Amrit. Wow. Um, yeah, just because... And, you know, I was reflecting upon this and it was in in a kind of an unconventional way. Uh, typically, the stories I hear of people getting inspired from uh, to take Amrit or follow the Rath involve a lot of encouragement, a lot of uh, love, and a lot of kind of uh, education. Um, while that did happen, mm-hmm. for sure, the ways I felt inspired most is when I felt the most uncomfortable. So I've transitioned from friends who not into Sikhi at all. Yep. Um, they're not even brown. So completely removed from Sikhi. Not mm-hmm. that you have to be brown to be a Sikh, but, but just the way where I was, that wasn't the case. Um, I just found myself in a place in which I, I thought to myself, what's stopping me from doing what these people are doing? Yeah. Why am I not wearing a dastar yet? Why am I not keeping my hair still? Mm-hmm. Why am I not striving to learn how to read Gurbani? Why is this not happening? Um, and I had a couple of instances in which I was kind of quote unquote called out on this, and and in a friend in 
in a friendly way, but in a way that hit me hard enough to to think that, you know, that was semi-serious. Yeah. I remember I was around a group of Gursiks, and one of them, who shall be unnamed, <laughs> um, is known to be very forthright and direct mm-hmm. with good intentions. And he said, um, hey, man, why do you cut your hair? Or why do you trim your beard? Yeah. I had no response for him. Mm-hmm. I, I sat there just dumbfounded. I said, I don't know. And everyone else was looking around. They're like, sorry, man, that's just this thing. You know, yeah. he likes it. He's a straight shooter. But he was right. Mm-hmm. I said, why don't I? And, you know, you think, I feel like this day and age, that could be easily interpreted as discouragement. Right? Yeah, you easily get offended by a question like that. Oh, yeah. It's just like, how dare you ask me? Exactly. Goodbye, I'm out. This is not Piat or whatever. But, yeah. But for me, it just struck differently. It was just, it was like, get upon its own way in that it just begged the question, why? I couldn't find a good answer. Another question I got, uh, like, as I started getting more involved in the seva, I found myself getting more involved with these phenomenal, amazing Singhs who did Sevan Singhs camp, mm-hmm. which is really kind of the foundation of getting me towards receiving Amrit. And one of them, um, he just came up to me when as we're doing the Sevan, and he went, why don't you have a gatra around your shoulder? Mm-hmm. Why isn't there a karpan there? I had no answer to, to that. I was practicing the red. I was doing everything. Why didn't I? Yeah. Again, another one of those questions that it seemed like you're pushing someone to go to Amrit, but it was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this funny story that some of the Sings, Sings at Sings Camp of 2013 or 2012 it was, uh, recall in which um, I'm sitting in Darbar after there was Hukum Nama Sahib and Kada Prasad Deg is being distributed in the Sangat. Um, I am a non-Amritari sitting there and I, <laughs> I put my hands out when the 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 thing distributing prashad is giving it to the panjipiyari first and he just walks by me and mm. i move my hands to where he's walking and and i'm thinking can this guy not see me yeah and i'm saying next to me he goes just just put your hands down I'll, I'll tell you later and he goes you you know that part of the mariyada is to distribute it to yep. punch things first and it was kind of embarrassing <laughs> But again, another awkward, uncomfortable situation mm-hmm. that just pushed me towards Sikhi, yep. not away. So a culmination of these things basically led me to the point to say, there's no reason why I shouldn't be <laughs> taking Amrit at this point. Yeah. And Guru Sahib did Bayant Kirpa. And, uh, and here I am, uh, almost 10 years later in, in January, practicing Amritari Sikh. Not a good one, but I'm there. <laughs> That's awesome because I think that really demonstrates also the value that some of these camps really do have. As um, someone who's been to a few of them, mostly the SYF now experienced Sikhi camp, um, as both a non-Amritari and an Amritari, what I realized is as an Amritari, you feel like it's just another opportunity to hang out with some sings, with some prachadiks, do seva, uh, reconnect with Maharaj, have a bit of a reset. But as a non-Amritari, the learning opportunities there are immense. Um, I had a similar instance when, during the experience of Kismagam, when I was an Amritari a few years ago, um, I learned that like Nishanchi Seva can only be done by Amritari Sings too. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, again, it was just a gentle reminder by a Sing that like, you know, only an Amritari can take on the Seva. And 
I think that's a blessing in itself that we l- looked at not getting that big first and then also not doing Nishanji Seva as an opportunity to to dig a bit deeper and eventually take on those sevas. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of it is just you want to be able to partake in things that the sangs and cause have partaken in. Um, because it seems like it's exclusive to Amritadis, but there's reason for it. right? Yes. They've given their head to the Guru, so then we got to take that leap if we should be deserving of of that Padvi too, or even taking on that seva. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy listening to the stories of how people come in. It's different for everyone, mm-hmm. but to know that a camp can have that much impact and the different learning opportunities that come through um, in a lot of the informal, casual settings, I think is is really, really underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so after taking Amrit, you've also taken on a lot of sevas and unique projects since then um, in different camps. Uh, I know how camp used to be a big thing in BC. Um, so how did you get involved in those after um, being a participant? And what did the seva da role look like? How was it different? Yeah, hmm. Um yeah, I was I was blessed to 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 partake in those sevas and it kind of really bridged from me receiving amrit because like you said once you're part of the army you get to fulfill the duties. Yeah. Right? That's a really and good way to put it. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that I that, I stole that from Bajiraj Singh <laughs> and I remember that because uh, it it really made sense to me um but that that job was there to go ahead and seek those opportunities to do those sevas now that I'm eligible to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really fun, to be honest. Like, if, if I say the number one reason that that inspired me to do seva, is just I thought it was really fun to do what I was doing and to see others grow in a similar way that I did. Yeah, That was a big motivation for me. Uh, the, the, the amount of kind of bliss you get from that journey is something that, you would wish upon everyone else, right? Um, and being a part of this existing Sangat who was already motivating me to do things like follow Rath, receive Amrit, um, just be a better Gursik, made it very easy to join these Sevas because mm-hmm. they were that much, like, they were very open-minded to you being a part of those Seva teams to fulfill those duties. So that's how I landed in Sevas like Singh's camp and how camp um like you said the camp is is such an immense opportunity for each, each Gursik to kind of further their personal development mm-hmm. that was kind of the theme of the Rahal camp it was very reflection based yeah um <clears throat> so doing those sevas uh again was it just brought that bought that personal prosperity uh, but also it was it was just a also about feeling a gap. Not that other camps didn't exist. There are plenty of other amazing camps mm-hmm. that exist. But to do it in your own way is something different. Yeah. Right? And to allow people just more avenues to seek that laha is also something different. So while doing those sevas, I, w- I would say that just overall, like the people that I was with who allowed me to do it made it so easy. And... Um, motivating just to continue to um to to carry on as long as we did um which opened up other avenues there like um from camps it inspires other people like guru kirpa each camp i can say that one person walked out as namratari and that's worth more than a camp of course if that happens Mm -hmm. um and from there 
those in Code 6 who are inspired from that started their own initiatives, which kind of creates this chain reaction of others to continue to, to get involved in different sevas. Mm -hmm. So the amount of opportunities to sevas were there. They were just limited, and they, they just branched off themselves and built connections with others. Community got bigger, and then all of a sudden... You find yourself with, you know, spoiled for choice with opportunities to do seva. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question there now, but that's uh, kind of my experience. No, that's huge because at the end of the day, they're all opportunities to build on each other. Um, the people that do get inspired and create their own initiatives, there's a foundation that they found in your own project and they decided to build on it even further. So I feel like that's just a prapti in itself. And, and again, I'm using the word underrated a lot, but one of the underrated goals of these initiatives and camps because the whole point is building on these things. As six, we try building on our knowledge on our time all the time on our ret. Um, and I feel like it's just another way of just building up prachar. Um, so thank you for sharing your experience with the amazing Gorsiks that you were around, your journey into the into Sikhi. It's not always an easy thing to recount one's past. Um, along that journey, were there any role models that stood out and inspired you along the way? Um, or helped you move forward? You've already mentioned a few Gorsiks that just prompted um, this development through their questions. Are there any mm -hmm. others that you want to mention that really helped push that forward? Yeah, I, I definitely say there there were, um, or there are, I should say, because they're still around. Um, uh, first person that comes to my mind is my mamaji, who you, it just, one of those things that, when you're young and you've seen someone who's done it, it just makes it that much more inspiring or uh, motivating to go, hey, if they can do it, I can do it too. Mm -hmm. um, so he was a person who practices rat as a Amritari Sikh and was a professional in that he's a successful dentist. Um, and just seeing him do these things was just kind of, infuse that kind of willpower to, to gain the ability to do the same. So I really would say he, he was someone who kind of shaped the foundation of, yes, it is possible. It is a thing. You can mm -hmm. do that. And you can do it with a smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he was there. Uh, also in, in 2013 at, at Singh's camp, I was really fortunate to, to meet uh, Bhagaji, who needs no introduction. <laughs> um, but Bhagaji just i think the uniqueness for me for when i met them uh wasn't necessarily kind of your typical kind of inspiration by your standard red mm -hmm. you know if you're talking about the sgpc mariada or something it's more of that this is the way you can live your life in the most unique beautiful ways imaginable um and you can be a flourishing sick to do that and you can be happy doing it mm -hmm. right a lot of the things that babaji does i for one look at going that's incredibly difficult but the yep. way he presents what you do or what you should be doing like he says it'll make your zindagi funny yeah. you have a great time this is this is great like eating the healthy prashadas he, he they make um they go they, i i <laughs> One time, I, I was having langar Vader in BC. I, 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 when they came to BC after Singh's camp in about 2015, I'd go every other day just to see, you know, what Babaji has to say. Mm -hmm. And he goes one day, and 
swad lagya and then when in my head i was like papa ji this is delicious yeah. this is actually really good and it's good for me mm-hmm. he made sikki or he makes sikki so fun yeah and but it's so good for you and usually the things that are good for you often aren't the best in terms of how enjoyable they are yep but to do that just still blows my mind mm-hmm. um so i would say he was like a core role model and continues to be as, as he is for millions of people around the world um or yeah. go to six um so yeah yeah i definitely say he he's there <laughs> for for those who don't know i think it's important to just provide some context bagaji bagajwant singh ji was one of vardimapur santagani gurbachan singh ji pandawadi students and um they took on the seva of recording a lot of the katha that we now have of vardimapur and have been teaching santhya for for decades as long as i can remember dedicated their entire life to the prosperity of the panth through um through instilling that rath and 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 that puratan rath of how things used to live with such an utcha sacha jeevan and um it seems so unachievable as people who have grown up in the west um but somehow they still made it happen with so many chardikala um gorsex and it's um we're fortunate to have them in, in ontario i always forget that they spent some time in bc mm-hmm. i know there's this picture of their uh, they're huge on fitness they they have um there's a picture of their membership to grouse mountain and they used to love doing that hike um <laughs> but that was just some context for for our listeners <laughs> i got a funny story about that i was on one of those grouse grinds the How last one the last one they ever did to date because you never know if they'll do one again yeah. despite their health i mean they're they're just something else uh that was the grouse grind that babaji decided to do in 8 hours <laughs> Yikes. And not because that's that was their physical limitation because they they could do it really fast mm-hmm. for for their age uh but there was something different that day um they just went really slow sajje sajje mm-hmm. and you would see them at each checkpoint doing this mini ardas as if they were kind of like blessing the mountain yeah i wow. can't even describe what was happening but it was just so much fun we went till nightfall the sun had set and we were still climbing that and when we got to the top there was like this super moon so there was some divine interplay going on there that yeah. i had no awareness of but i'll never expect that uh, forget that experience because the the multiple little lessons that they taught on that way of that grind was just were just something else i yeah i thought i'd mention that cuz you mentioned the grout grind and yeah no, that, that's an unforgettable memory i think um <coughs> it's something important to express cuz in today's world we've now started to think of sansan mapurks very differently but at the end of the day they're they're teachers right and everything they do well, one thing i've noticed is it's not just what they say but it's what they do where you learn the most um it's not again it's not just gani it's gani and i think mapurks like pagaji really like pure uttar deya right that they mm-hmm. they go all the way and and I, i don't know if it's intentional or unintentional but it's just the way they live the way they hold themselves the way they do certain things where 90% of the lessons come from and then the 10% that they actually say with their parmans is just tying it all together yeah. um no thank you so much for sharing i i love hearing <laughs> stories about mapuks in general um uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit now that was your journey into sikki um you have a very unique journey into becoming a clinical counselor Um so where did you study and work over the years 
And how did you eventually land where you are now as um, holding your own practice in clinical counseling? Yeah, it's just, uh, always kind of a fun one for me again to talk about because I meant, as I mentioned previously, it wasn't a straight line by any means. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> for me, like counseling was when I was younger was was just something that looked kind of appealing because in the movies it seemed fun. Yeah. Right. You're just talking to someone for a living. And just you a found that time. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Because interesting. I, yeah. I guess. I guess when you see someone lying down and just, you know, in, in the movies, you I give this example to my clients a lot when they when I try to dispel the myth of counseling. But in yeah. the movies, you'll see someone lying on a couch and another, and the therapist just telling them to kind of just keep talking about their lives or mm -hmm. their dreams or whatever. I just found that, hey, if I'm getting paid to do that, it seems like a quite an interesting <laughs> career prospect. Yeah. Um, besides the fact that, you know, I just like talking, mm -hmm. uh, as you could tell. Um <clears throat> But it was just that, though. It was just kind of an afterthought. It seemed like maybe a backup career, I don't know, mm -hmm. because the number one career, of course, was to become a doctor. Yeah. Um, and I did probably don't need to tell many of the young, younger brown uh, listeners why, because uh, a lot of our parents had a big ambitions for us. Yeah. Uh, and that was no different for me. Um, <clears throat> so that was the real goal, or the, sorry, the original plan was to get your degree in some sort of science and write the MCAT and off you go. Uh, it wasn't till third year in which I put my foot down and I went, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my MCAT's in a week. Uh, I couldn't find any other place to book it, so I, I'll go to Edmonton. Wow. But a week before I went, I called my mom and said, you know, I kind of don't want to be a doctor anymore. Can I not write this? Mm -hmm. And you could probably imagine how that went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, did, how did it go? You know what? As I said that, I said that jokingly, you would think it would have been a little hostile or met with uh, <clears throat> some unfriendly behavior, uh -huh. but uh, it was not bad. It was at first like, dude, thanks for telling me a week before we could have avoided this, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but overall, my, my mom was very supportive and my dad too. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate in that in the many career paths that I had, they kind of just sucked it up and went, okay, but if you want to try something else, we can go for it. But like, think about it this time. Don't just yeah. do something. So after mm. I had left that path, you're kind of in that weird spot there where you've invested everything into medical school. You don't want to do it anymore. And there's no tangible career that comes out of that. Yeah. Um, so I went into research, did that for about a year. Grateful for that experience. Not up my alley again. Did you end up finishing that degree, that first one? I did. So okay. the behavioral neuroscience degree I got is what I did finish because I was actually gen like genuinely interested in the topic. Mm -hmm. Um but the research that came along with it, especially, you know, testing lab rats and whatnot, just not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's why I kind of strayed away from that. Um, and then I went to accounting. So that was just like a big left turn. And the, my reasoning behind that was, all right, there's already like a couple of years down the drain for not doing this med medical route. Yeah. Why not just go into a stable job that gives you solid income with good hours and you can just enjoy life outside of what you do for a living. Mm -hmm. 
And I did that for about three and a half years. And boy, was I miserable. It was just convincing myself that, no, it gets better from here. It'll, yeah. it'll be fine. You know, just because you're sitting at your computer all day doesn't necessarily mean what you do after work won't be fun. And I was overcompensating like mm -hmm. that. I would find myself, you know, doing very kind of outlandish things. You know, let's try rock climbing today or let's uh, do this other extreme thing the other day just yeah. to kind of make up for that dreadful job that I'd walk into. And no mm -hmm. disrespect to accountants. I should probably say that if it's for you, it's great. I know plenty of amazing accountants <laughs> yeah. who actually like what they do. Mm -hmm. I did not. I couldn't fathom it. So I had to kind of <clears throat> pull my socks up, um, suck it up again, and go to my parents and go, by the way, remember that accounting thing I did? Saves yeah. me over the medical school thing. Different context. And, you know, thank Guru Sahib, they went, okay, mm -hmm. well, you know, if you want to do it, we can change around again. Um, and that was a real big leap of faith because I'm 27 at this point. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the youth I talk to, they think it's 27. For some reason, they think it's old. <laughs> I not, personally don't. You <laughs> I don't? was about oh, to say, okay. you're a really young professional. Oh, oh, good for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you shouldn't, because when you hit my age, um, it doesn't seem too bad. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can see how to some people say, you know, I'm too deep in to make any drastic changes. I just have to go through whatever, what, with whatever I've committed to. Yeah. But Guru Kirpa, I, something inside of me said, you know, uh, I can't do this for the next 30 years in good conscience. It doesn't make any sense. So I ended up taking that leap of faith to counseling, which is always in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. Career-wise, best thing I could have ever done. This job, I can see myself doing more than 30 years. It was wow. such a wonderful thing to be doing. And the schooling itself was like a, it was kind of like um, so revolutionary on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I changed, the way I, uh, sorry, the, the way I thought, the way I spoke, the way I acted, all changed to that two-year course, that master's degree, because uh, a lot of it is about introspection, how you see yourself. Kind of, it's kind of like you have to counsel yourself through the studies before yeah. you can counsel someone else. So I was really grateful for that, and that's what ended up, uh, that's how I ended up where I was, and more importantly, that's how I ended up happily being where I was. That's kind of an insight to my journey. And just a, an, again, a, just a note to other listeners out there, especially young ones, it, it actually isn't too late mm -hmm. like to make those changes. You know, late 20s, early 30s, if it means pursuing the passion that you feel like you haven't able to achieve yet or tap into, yeah. it's just another opportunity. And, and, and the time that, that you may think you've lost, like, I can easily say that, oh, I wasted those three years of being an accountant. Mm -hmm. I can do my own taxes now. Yeah. I, I, I have a basic understanding of finance. Mm -hmm. Those skills really came in handy. And I found that employers, when they called me out on that, uh, it just led to a story that was more inspiring than it did that, oh, this guy seems a little flaky or yeah, we exactly. should give him the job. So, so yeah, so, so go for it is what I'm trying to say. I did want to bring it back to, to one question. When you decided to take Amrit, was there any pushback from your parents? Sometimes youth do um, experience a bit of hesitation from the parents' side because they're like, oh, some of the typical conversations are like, 
you know, Vianney Horner, or maybe you can mm-hmm. wait until you're in your mid fifties yeah. and then it's a better idea. Was there any pushback or were they just as supportive as they were in your career changes? There were pushbacks. Okay. Uh, it, it was ironic because my dad is, was one to always m- encourage me to take Amrit. Mm-hmm. When was the question though? Yeah. It's that typical when you get older, when you get more developed in your career and yep. your life, then take it. Not now. You can't handle it. Yeah. Um, which is fair point. I could see it from parents, from a lot of other parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question comes in, you're not guaranteed those breaths. Yeah. And, and my parents n- never had exactly. an answer for that. And it's about taking that leap of faith and, and, and allowing Guru Sahib to be your parent at mm-hmm. the end of the day. And guess what? You know, I've, in my experience, I've rarely heard parents end up ending up not being happy after their child receives Amrit. Very true. Uh, there will be pushback. There will be a little bit of resistance. But when they see how much Guru Sahib makes you into a better character, that it turns out to be fine. And, and Guru Kirpa, my parents are fine too. And if any anything, it's, it's motivating them. So That's yeah. awesome. Um, back to your career. Why did you pick clinical counseling specifically? Because in general, the the science, med, whatever field you want to call it, it's abundant with with the number of paths you could take. Mm-hmm. So why clinical counseling specifically, other than your love for what they did in movies? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that's a good question. Um, for me, it was really shaped by my personal experiences with friends who were having a tough time. So mm-hmm. when asking myself this question, not only why should I do it or why do I think I'd be good at it, which is a different question. Um, I reflected back upon what kind of, what part of the job I would like. And I found that I genuinely love to hear my friends and family talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just find it interesting. I don't think I'm very fascinated with myself. Me talking about this podcast might be contradictory to that, I realize. But like genuinely, I love hearing people's stories. Mm-hmm. I love seeing them overcome obstacles in which they didn't think they'd have the courage to do. Yeah. And I, I came across a couple of friends who were, I would venture to say, clinically depressed. I make that distinction because... What, is, what does that mean when we say clinically? Even being a clinical counselor, what does that clinical mean? Clinical implies that you have this kind of formal backing or training okay. um, in the work you do. So in a clinical environment, like, okay. you know, a clinic is a place where patients come and receive treatment. Yep. Um, much in the way that uh, if you're clinically doing something, you're doing it with some sort of expertise. Okay. Um, um, clinically depressed um, would be distinct from just feeling depressed. So... Hmm. So you can have depressive symptoms, meaning you can feel very down, you can lack motivation. Um, and, you know, when, when some people say that they're depressed, they really mean they're just not having a good day or a good mm-hmm. time. Clinically depressed is a set of criteria that entails a diagnosis. You have hmm. to have five or six things that you meet, these characteristics that, you, that you're going through that uh, define it as per the um, DSM-5, per mm-hmm. se. So when I say clinically depressed, I mean someone who's going through just as legitimate to struggle, but they have yeah. these accompanying symptoms. Got it. Um, so that's, an, that's a really important question because that can be very con- easily confused. 
for the, the normal depression term. Um, anyways, um, I saw that my friends were struggling and, and I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe they just need some sort of support in some way and not, not like I was a counselor then, so I wasn't doing clinical work. Yeah. I was just listening. I was just trying to, you know, make up solutions of what they can think is better, whether that was like playing NHL 2013 with them or just sitting there if they needed to cry or go for a walk, you know, just mm-hmm. things that anyone can do. Yeah. Um, I went, geez, when, 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 when some of these people really overcame their op- obstacles, it was just, it felt so right. It felt like there needs to be more of this. And it didn't feel like it was too hard on me to be in the receiving end, because sometimes it can be yeah. when you're a caretaker like that, mm-hmm. caregiver rather. Um, so that's kind of what drew me in, because I saw that there's something that existed there inside of me um, in my personal life. I just thought it would be a great opportunity to professionally pursue it. Amazing. Um, I know when we spoke earlier, one thing you mentioned was um, sick history is a lot of helping on a large scale and clinical counseling allows you to help one person very well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to expand on that? What did you mean? Uh, how does that play into your your profession? Um, so I guess what I meant by that was like, when when I traditionally thought of Sikhi, I really thought of it as Sikhs and our Thuram really strives to help people uh, on a very large scale. And I mean, that's not what it only does, but from my experience, you know, you see Seva Raza Khalsaid going every corner of the world to mm-hmm. help people. Uh, you see the Banth flourishing and this emphasis on Sangat, yeah. meaning this collective healing in a group uh, dynamic. And that was amazing. And it could also do this individual personal work too. And in my experience, I found that for some reason, I feel like this is really needed. I feel like people really need that outlet to just really express themselves and have that attention Mm -hmm. to do so. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what attracted me. And when I said... I, I'm fond fond of helping one person really well. It really kind of means giving that person all you got to help them and focusing on them to make them feel like they're belong they belong somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so counseling is is an outlet that allows for that, right? Because it's often one to one therapy. Yeah, there's one person given that fifty minutes hour time to express whatever they'd like. And I feel like that's a rare opportunity these days. I don't feel like people have the patience. I don't want to generalize that, but I feel like it is it's it is hard to find that space mm-hmm. to allow yourself just to express all those really vulnerable feelings to one person for that long. So to help them develop in that way, that's what I kind of meant by helping one person really mm-hmm. well. I'm not sure if I made that clear, like if my explanation of that was clear, but that, that's the idea I'm getting at. Awesome. So um, before we move on, a recurring theme in conversations in youth is the struggle to balance Sikhi with school. Um, how did you go about managing this challenge? Because you've done a lot of schooling up until this point versus someone who might be having the struggles in 
something as short as a three-year college diploma program. Um, so how did you go about mal- managing this challenge and what lessons did you learn through that academic experience? That's, that's, that's another really great question. Uh, I think um, throughout my years of schooling, I'm going to agree by saying that, yes, it was incredibly difficult sometimes to mm-hmm. to manage both things. Um, because in the beginning, my perception was that for some reason, these are two kind of unrelated things. You either get to practice your sikhi or you either devote your time to schooling. And that seems intuitive, right? You only have time to do one mm-hmm. thing. Um, but as I progressed in my schooling, uh, Maharaj implanted this idea that these things can go hand in hand. Um, they don't necessarily have to be this uh, one or the other deal. Um, I found that doing your nitanim helps you, like if you do it in a way in which you know you're you're listening to it, you understand some of it at least. Um, for your own personal development and spiritual development, mm-hmm. helps you in your schooling. Now, for me, it helps being a counselor because part of the work that I do can involve discussing sikhi, people's own personal sikhi. Mm-hmm. Um, but for just the study portion of it, uh, I would find that you know we need self-care. We need measures to help ourselves grounded so we can do this rigorous schoolwork. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you know, when you're pulling those all-nighters, when you're writing those essays, you're doing those exams, uh, if you don't give yourself those breaks and that time to just decompress, uh, you might have a bad time. And that's yeah. when the energy districts start popping out and all that stuff. But, mm. you know, if your nitanim is looked at your break or your time to decompress or your gut guys or your um, going to Sangat, all these things like as Maharaj says countless times, are there to help you relieve mm-hmm. your anxiety, right? Um, feel uh, empowered. Yeah. Um, so it does go hand in hand. So that, that's what I felt like was changing. That's how the balance was allowed, is to see it as something that is part of schooling. Mm-hmm. It's not something distinct or separate from that. Yeah, I find that very cool because another thing you mentioned when we spoke last time was the fact that a lot of these struggles branch into your career as well. Um, that's a misconception I've had for a very long time, as in once your career is set, I'm going to have all the time in the world. Um, but I'm also realizing now that a lot of students I talk to, just getting their career in place, they have those 12-hour days. They have those you know, seven-day weeks. Um, so maybe it's not as easy as just getting a job and then you say, key lines up. Um, it is a lot about perspective and and thinking of it as... Uh, something that helps you rather than something you have to do. Yeah, totally. Um, In terms of your experience as a clinical counselor, you've mentioned that it's a 50 minutes to an hour slot talking to people. Um, Is that it as a clinical counselor? How do you initiate those conversations? What do you do with those conversations after? Mm, Yeah, so that is of the bulk of the work but my not, no means all of the work okay um if you're looking for like a kind of how that process is i can elaborate sure. on, on what that looks like so 
getting into therapy isn't like, or being in present in a session isn't necessarily the first step by, by any means. Mm -hmm. um, reaching out in itself can be very difficult. It's almost uh, an ask to yourself to be very vulnerable, a commitment to say, I'm going to tell potentially some really personal and deep things to a stranger uh, in hopes that I'm going to feel better. Now, if I pitch it like that to someone, not many people are going to be sign mm -hmm. waiting front of the line to do that. So the barrier there is just reaching out for the help is, is a big step in itself. Mm -hmm. So often when clients email me or call me or however they reach out to me, they'll say, you know, this is my first time. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to start. Um, I don't even know if I want to do this. Mm -hmm. So it'll start off with just gauging where they're at and meeting them there. Okay. So I'll have a brief consultation call to see what their needs are to, for them to get to know me because as, as important as it is for them to vibe with me, I would need the kind of same relationship on my end for the therapeutic relationship to work. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the initial steps is get laying the groundwork for that and establishing that connection. Uh, most of the times, you know, it'll it'll be good. Sometimes you might find, you know, it's not an appropriate fit, but that's not the end of it because there's plenty of other amazing counselors out there. Yeah. Um, then you would get into more of the kind of deep work of sessions and seeing the clients regularly, whether that be weekly, biweekly, sometimes monthly. Mm -hmm. And on the outskirts of that is, you know, your your case notes, your your research on how to help them, mm -hmm. maybe seeking supervision, um, peer supervision, um, other medical professionals like their general practitioner, mm -hmm. their occupational therapist. Um, these kind of other things that are going around in the background all contribute to, to the therapy. It's yeah. not simply, come on in, let's talk, see you later. Mm -hmm. Even that, um, I'm fond of, um, at the end of the session, assigning my clients this kind of homework assignment in which they're applying what they're, they're learning mm -hmm. outside into the real life because one of my beliefs in therapy is as much as it is seeking that help in the space, it's about growing and independently uh, seeking out those skills outside of the space because mm -hmm. ultimately they're there so they, they can be fine at their home, not yeah. to just be fine in, in, in the therapy. Mm -hmm. So lots of things going on. Uh, some of them Very enjoyable, cool. some not. <laughs> uh, but overall, it's uh, it can be a little bit more involved than it seems. You mentioned um, an intersection with other medical professionals, um, whether it be their you know, general practitioners, etc. How much of that is them referring patients to you versus you just coming across one of their patients and then having to work with them? Hmm. I think largely for my private practice, um, it's more of referrals coming from them. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, and from there, maybe word of mouth spreading. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean there are cases in which uh, I will actively go out to the uh, medical professionals mm -hmm. to discuss their case. Um, but it's, it seems to be a little bit more, more one-sided in that way. Okay. And the reason why I think that is is because having a family doctor is something that's been around for centuries, yeah. right? Um, it's a very standard practice. There's a little to no shame sometimes around doing that. Yeah. Come to a counselor, it can be a little, little bit of a different ballgame. Mm -hmm. It's unfamiliar. 
So you wouldn't see the kind of the other way happening too much. Yeah. Um, as you would them coming to me, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, in terms of your experience so far as a clinical counselor, is there one part of the job which you feel like is the best part and something you look forward to all the time every day you're in the office? Yes, I think um, for me, it's it's those moments where you where you pick up when the client has realized their change, their improvement, their success. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no greater joy to me in the job than seeing that. Not because I feel I feel accomplished. Yeah, I just love seeing people feel the way they do when they realize they have the ability. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah there's nothing can really replace that so i would say that's pretty much number one for me that's amazing um one of the things you mentioned before we started was you're not much of a talker you're more of a listener how much of being a clinical counselor is being a listener and when you do engage yourself in the conversation and you begin talking what's your main contribution what are you adding to the conversation i I really like this question because it, it can kind of dispel some myths about counseling, um, I I wouldn't say that there is this standard formula of counselor should be talking X percentage and client should be talking Y percentage. Mm-hmm. It really depends on the relationship you have. Clients come in and they request the counselor to be more directive, yeah. do more of the talking, ask me questions. I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Other clients, they go, strap in. I'm about to tell you my life story. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning... That's what's needed. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on where the client's at with there. And my philosophy is to always have that client be in the driver's seat. I'm just the passenger that might be suggesting some different routes. Not mm-hmm. even suggesting, asking questions so clients can consider other routes. Yeah. Right? Because there's a that distinction between coaching and counseling. Like coaching mm-hmm. is purely directive. Like yeah. based on what I know, here are the things that you can do. To me, counseling is more of a, you know, let's let's discover what you what your context or your perspective on life is right now and mm-hmm. let's explore other avenues through questions. Yeah. Um, and I firmly believe all the cl- the clients are the experts of their lives. They have the answers. Mm-hmm. You rarely find me saying, do this, do that. Um, unless it concerns safety. Um, that's just because, I, I again, I really believe that they have that ability and um, they'd be really surprised when they figured out, you know, I'm just asking the questions. You've got the answers. So um, that depends. And it also depends on kind of the demographic too. Yeah. Like like Upperne or um, brown folks in general, uh, especially older brown folks, um, Culturally, they just, they're used to, you know, doctor side, what do I do? Yeah. Right. Many of them call me doctor. If I tell them repeatedly, I don't have a doctoral degree, like I'm not a doctor. Yeah. At some point, you just take it and they go, bomb, look, people are calling me doctor. Are you happy now? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, they, to them, tr- treatment or help is just tell me what to do. So yeah. there's a big barrier then as, well, that's not my job. So how do I navigate that? So you got to be a little different there, right? You got to um, know how to how to question in different ways. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, the answer to that, I suppose. Has that been one of the biggest challenges as well? Just um, navigating through that 
stigma or the expectation of when you go to a counselor, especially in our community? Definitely. I definitely would say so. It's it's up there because it's not taught in school, at least the schooling I've got. I mean, there there's your you have your chapter on cultural culturally relevant counseling, but that yeah. doesn't fit the bill of how that works in practice. Um, uh, sorry to say it, but much of the evidence-based treatments we have have been based on the, the West, right? Um, there is that spirituality and mindfulness component that's borrowed from the East, mm-hmm. but most of it, like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, <clears throat> motivational interviewing, you can go on and on, really involve this idea of introspection which can be a very individualistic process yeah something that for us can be foreign because we're very group-minded we care about everyone right this is this issue just isn't about me it's about my dad my mom my brother my sister etc and i haven't really just discovered that for myself it's not even a thing Mm -hmm. you try asking an auntie that comes in you know um how do you feel about so-and-so's thing? That's not like, what does that mean? To yeah. Them, right. So, so how do you go about that? Um, so I would say that's, that's been a really big challenge. I was going to ask this question a bit um, later, but again, there's stigmas around counseling and getting help mm-hmm. in general that exists within the South Asian community. Do you think of it as part of your job to help remove those stigmas and not just for your clients, but in the community um, at large, and if if you do feel like that, how how are some of the ways you go about it? I think that's my social responsibility, okay. In the sense that you know, counselors should have that mentality and approach. Mm-hmm. I don't think necessarily it's part of the definition of a clinical counselor, okay. But it it does help me, so why not? Yeah, it helps helps our community, so why not? Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah the st- I, I, the way I approach in kind of destigmatizing is one to really emphasize those burning questions as anyone else going to know and is this going to go on my record um, and as obvious as might see to people in the field outside people just don't know and they're rightfully concerned yeah. I wouldn't want anyone knowing some of that information either so just emphasizing confidentiality the strictness of that. Um, and the fact that, no, it doesn't go on this mysterious record that won't allow you to get your job 10 yeah. years down the road, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of it. And the other part is just the process. Talking and, and showing that empathy and engaging with the client in itself can be de- destigmatizing because mm-hmm. you're normalizing everyday problems, Yeah. right? A lot of people come in. And their questions are, you know, am I, am I lost my marbles here for thinking this way? And it'll be things that you think to yourself going, I'm right there with you. I'm thinking this every other day myself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make anyone here kind of crazy or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. They're normal things. They just need to be, you just need to hear them. Mm-hmm. You need someone to tell you. And it helps when that someone is a professional as opposed to your neighbor or your friend. Mm-hmm. So that that helps in the destigmatization of, of this. Very interesting. That was going to be my second question is why is it important to reach out to a clinical counselor? But I think you've answered that in terms of, again, it being a professional. I'm going to I'm going to tap into that a little bit. Why a professional over someone like a neighbor? I think 
there's a couple of reasons there. One, a professional has the training that's proven to help people. While you're someone who isn't trained in it, might have things that have helped. Yeah. They also might have things that in certain contexts, contexts, sorry, I bet in certain contexts could not help or be harmful. Mm-hmm. Right. If for person A, um, they say, you know, I do ten push-ups every morning. And it's great for me and it helps me feel good. You should do that too. Uh, person B might go, I did that. I overexerted myself. That didn't work. Yeah. Right? And that and and that that could have been valid advice. Right? Uh, a counselor um, kind of is has goes in with a perspective that, you know, there's not this one fit all solution. Mm-hmm. It depends on the person. Let's borrow to their strengths and let's look at what doesn't fit with them mm-hmm. that's part of the professionalism there right yeah. it's, it's, it's not intuitive really to do that in your everyday conversation you're going to say true. you know this works for me i'm going to do it yeah uh, end of story um the other thing is that um there's a liability piece too right uh, where, where our job the reason we can be empathetic and uh, do the job well is because we're bound by a code of ethics your neighbor's not bound by that code of ethics. Mm-hmm. They're bound by their own moral compass. Exactly. Which doesn't, if that doesn't fit with you, it could lead to some problems. Mm-hmm. And it could also lead back into that stigma, right? Yeah. You all of a sudden tell your neighbor that you have the problems and the neighbor is just too tempted to tell the other neighbor. Mm-hmm. You're in a vulnerable position there. There goes Counsel- the confidentiality. Exactly. So, so those are just a couple of reasons why I feel like it's really important to make that distinction between a professional and just a friend. and But that's not to say your social circle plays a big part in your healing. Mm-hmm. And, and that shouldn't be undervalued. Amazing. Um, what type of people come to clinical counselors? So um, are there certain traits or circumstances that might make someone more likely? And the reason why I ask this is, again, breaking down that, that stigma, putting yourself in certain situations that, helps you get more comfortable with the idea that, you know, counseling is good for me and uh, the benefits will outweigh um, the potential cons you have set in your mind by a long shot. Yeah. um, So to answer that first question, anyone can come to counseling. Unfortunately, I think society or the media or whoever you want to call it Mm -hmm. has painted this picture that someone who is behind in life or lacking certain skills yeah. or just not well off are the candidates for counseling. Mm-hmm. The rest of everyone else is fine. I find that can't be further from the truth. I feel like counseling, while its main purpose is to help with someone's declining mental health, it is also helps to, to sustain someone's good mental health. Mm-hmm. You can look Wow, for, very interesting. Yeah, yeah right? You never yeah. hear that. You don't. It's not promoted. I try to make an effort to promote that, that mm-hmm. counseling is just not about coping. It's about prevention as much as it's about coping. Yeah, um, It's about bettering yourself even if you think you're in a good place, right? You've got to keep yourself there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really kind of opens a whole new avenue as to why you can come out to counseling. Mm-hmm. The only condition to me to, to see a counselor is to be curious about yourself. That's it. It doesn't matter what's going on in life, mm-hmm. whether you're going through grief and loss, uh, whether you have troubles managing anger, there's family conflict, whatever it is, 
just the requirement is just to be curious about yourself and be a little bit vulnerable in the beginning, mm-hmm. if that even. Because some people come in saying, I will tell you literally anything in my life. Mm-hmm. I've had clients give me PowerPoint presentation about their life. Wow. Um, it just shows how committed they are to be the best people they can be. So, um, yeah, counseling for anyone. That's awesome. That removes so much stigma already. Because I think, again, it, it might have shown up in the movies and shows that inspired you. But a lot of it is you feel like you're so far gone and this is the only way to work your way back. Yeah. Um, I've, I personally haven't even thought of counseling as something that can help you retain good mental health. Because I've always thought of good mental health as being something you you build on your own, mm-hmm. right? It's like a it's like a safe keep almost that you don't share with anyone else. Um, but I think that's just my limitation in thinking that once you achieve a certain level of good mental health, you can't build on that, or mm-hmm. you can't keep it there. That it's a you know it's a um, it's a whole job in itself of just keeping yourself there. Yeah. Um, so amazing insight. I'm 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 so glad that this is coming out because. As, as someone who's a young adult, now my perspective is completely changing about uh, who might be going to a clinical counselor. Um, going off of that, what you're able to do for a client, has there been a moment in your career so far where you thought to yourself or you felt that this is why I did it all? It was all worth it, right? In, the, in that one moment, um, have you had that kind of epiphany or that like, thank you. Like, thanking yourself that, you know, you made the right choices and you finally got here and this is why I became a clinical counselor. Hmm. I'm not sure if I have, to be honest. Very interesting question. Um, off the bat, there's no particular kind of defining moment that that strikes out mm-hmm. as as being that kind of, hey, this, this is why, what it's all built up to right yeah kind of the started from the bottom now we're here type of thing <laughs> exactly. uh, it's more of been kind of just small meaningful interactions yeah um that just reinforce that you know this is this is my destiny if you will mm-hmm. um whether it's being reflecting on how miserable i was as an accountant mm-hmm. or it's yeah. being that seeing that one person overcome that obstacle it kind of just adds up in small parts mm-hmm. and it's not until uh an amazing person like you steps back and asks me that question that I think this basket's getting bigger and bigger every day. It's yeah. getting more full, right? So I would say it's those smaller moments that add up. Um, but if there is an epiphany, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love how you just mentioned that even looking back and realizing you didn't like accounting. Um, when I ask that question, it comes with the intention that it's within your career. And that, that just broke another, um, it unlocked a new level where some of those moments are, are just, they're all over. It's not just in your daily job, but they might just be looking back at your journey so far. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who offers so much help to so many people, um, do you ever burn out? And, and burnout doesn't have to necessarily be like, like I'm just done with the work, but do you ever feel like during the course of a day where you've just taken on so much and you just got to sit back? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are moments of burnout. Um, just because if you, if you look at what, what the job entails, it's a lot of listening and 
in addition to listening, it's about that response of tapping into empathy. Mm-hmm. And being a human being, and especially being someone, you know, who myself just, you can't always 100% be empathetic to the T at every living moment. It's just almost, I feel like, physically impossible. Not because you don't want to be, it's because it requires resources, right? Like yeah. Not just physical, mental ones. And, and when you start thinking of yourself, and your own hardships and struggles, it can kind of take away from who or what is in front of you. Um, so there's limits there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to tend to that burnout. Um, otherwise, uh, you can't really go for too long. So I, I would say that they're there and there's been those days, but nothing close to that, you know, I'm out. I quit, yeah. nothing like that. Um, it's just something to be aware of. How do you recover or prevent those those burnout phases? And do you also now get help or do you help yourself? Um, recovery from that, sick key is, is huge there. Um, just like I, as I mentioned with school, it goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. It's no different with my job, especially for my job. Um, it uh, Just taking those breaks, setting boundaries for your own work, they're, they're not much different com- from your typical job, right? If yeah. you work too many hours, you know if you're working too much or not. Right, like even if I was an accountant, it'd be no yeah. different. Um, so there's that, um, and yeah, getting help myself. I see a counselor. I have no shame in saying that. And my clients go, "You see a counselor?" And they're uh, and I find it amusing that they're mind blown by that because <laughs> it's that idea of my counselor sees a counselor. But we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't uh, look twice if you said my doctor sees a doctor, right? Huh. Would you? Yeah, I'm assuming you wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, it's just because you can't counsel yourself. I've hmm. tried. I've failed miserably. Counseling is a dialogue. Yeah. Right? Having a dialogue with a, your own mind is, well, it's just good luck. Yeah. Right? Yeah, to see it happen. So, and and I'm not afraid to say either that, you know, my it's not like I go to counseling for this very dire issue. Um, and the, again, nothing wrong if you do, but for me, it's that personal development. Mm-hmm. I want to be on the other end of the chair there. I want to see what my client experiences. I want to kind of be curious about myself, my mm-hmm. own spirituality. Why don't I practice what I preach? Um, and if I told you my counselor is, all my clients would probably go to him because he's a fantastic <laughs> guy. <Yeah. laughs> um, we need more Gursik counselors out there. Yeah, That's one thing. When I was looking for a counselor, um, I thought just, wouldn't it be nice to have that option, right? Um, so, to, to answer your question, yes, that the, 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 I do see like I do seek help outside of just myself, mm-hmm. and it is necessary to attend to that burnout. You just mentioned Gorsik counselors. What is what does being a Gorsik add to you being a counselor? Does it come up in conversations with clients? Does it assist you when you're helping your client? Oh, that's a very interesting question again. Because what comes to my mind instantly is your your sroop. Um, like, let alone all the gyan that you have as, as a gursik, mm-hmm. uh, being a big source of help. I feel like the first initial contact of especially many upper-nate clients seeing you, Maharaj is giving you the sroop where you instantly get respect. Mm-hmm. You see a gursik and go, this person to some level has 
their stuff together. Yeah. It almost entails that there must be some sort of rep, something they're doing to better themselves in the world because that's what they've signed up for. Mm -hmm. So automatically, I respect this person. I'm interested in what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And you have that kind of clientele coming saying, you know, I've come here and I've chosen you because you're a Gursik and I know Sikhi has this treasure and I want to learn about it. Yeah. Right? And and you, you know, you would think like in ethically, you know, you're not supposed to impart your own religious beliefs on someone, mm-hmm. even if you do think they'll do well. But that's to me I found the opposite. People are coming because they already have an existing foundation of Sikhius coping. Mm-hmm. They want to just expand that. That's beautiful. And yeah. I get to have the time of my life talking about Sikhi at my job. Not many people get to say they do that. Yeah. And I'll forever be grateful for that. That's amazing. Um, wow. I've never thought about it that way. I, I think you bring up a really good point that counseling may be one of those very few um, professions that allow you to do that. Because thinking from the perspective of a law student, the law is the letter of the land and you can't deviate too much from it. Mm-hmm. You can offer a different perspective, but a lot of that isn't rooted in dharam, spirituality, sikhi, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, amazing. I, I think that just opens up counseling as a profession because a lot of the conversations also tend to be what's an ethical enough profession to join as a gursik. Yeah. And sometimes those aren't easy to find. Mm-hmm. But I'm just realizing now that the the boundaries of being a counselor uh, allow you to to have an ethical and also participative kind of um, career as a Gursik. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been through what's been your, um, the ups and downs of the job, burnout, um, but also being able to help. Thinking back to when you were in first year undergrad, if you now were able to have a conversation with first-year undergrad Parambi, is there any piece of advice or lesson that you'd want to give him? <laughs> the first thing would be join the SSA faster. Or <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Get to it. Don't waste any time. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> career-wise... It doesn't have to be career-wise either. Yeah, I guess, it, I guess it doesn't, right? Yeah. Um, it, it does naturally come to me because given the journey I've told you about, about going through all these kind of different paths. Yeah. I would just advise myself to know that it's okay to try different things and it's okay to be scared of them Mm -hmm. and it's okay to do them while being scared. There's nothing wrong with that. The consequence or the uh, thing that you think is going to happen isn't as bad as it seems, Mm -hmm. right? Because that anxiety can really get to you. It can really prevent you from so much potential. And my advice to, I guess, that, that younger self would be to to know that, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. Mm-hmm. You can do these things and it's okay. Very interesting. Did you have, how were the fear levels when you were making those decisions? Um, and how did you decide that overcoming them would be um, more beneficial? It would, outf- it would outweigh the fears that you had. Mm-hmm. I think those fear levels were near all-time highs. Really? Wow. Yeah, just because... There's a lot at stake. There is. That's exactly what I was going to say. This is not just picking between two ice cream flavors. If anyone (laughs) knows me that's listening to to this, 
they know that I'm an extremely indecisive person. I once spent like 45 minutes at a 7-Eleven trying to pick between two chocolate bars. It's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Probably should talk to my counselor about that one. But um, it. what I was going to say is that the the way I felt like I overcame that kind of fear and indecisiveness was the Sangat around me. I was fortunate enough to have people that were very encouraging and discouraging. So if I had I had friends who raised their eyebrows when they said I'm going to be an accountant, and it's a, and that was a good thing I think because they realized that you you should think about this again, right? It's yeah. okay to 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 make a calculated guess here. You don't have to plunge into something on an impulse. Is mm-hmm. kind of what I did, um, but that sangat really shaped me. I was very fortunate to have that. I would say that's kind of the number one thing, and the other thing was. Just allowing myself that future foresight. You can think about 30 years ahead in time mm-hmm. and think about, am I going to be happy? That answer can be, I don't know. But give yourself a shot. Give yeah. yourself an opportunity to think about that. Um, you don't know what's going to come out of it. It might just be that last push you need for the leap of faith. Interesting. We've, we've explored your past. Now thinking forward a little bit, where do you see yourself in about five years? Hmm. I see myself in the same place being, meaning continuing to do the work that I do, mm-hmm. um, continuing to enjoy it, uh, but also scaling it a little bit, of course, not only in terms of my own business and my clientele, mm-hmm. but just allowing others to see that this is a great opportunity, a great career. Like like I said, how I love to see other Gursikhs um, be counselors. Mm-hmm. I see myself being an advocate for those younger six and anyone in general. They don't have to be six, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a, there's something special about them being four six because seeing kind of my own journey and how it's gone, such like hand in hand, what I do, I just would love to see how other people put their spin on it, their own interpretation of what they have to offer. Because mm-hmm. I know for a fact it'll be way more than what I have. So so I kind of see myself trying to advocate for that. And hopefully something comes out of that. The scaling part of your business, I brought up another question. What does scaling as a clinical counselor look like? Um, in terms of you only have so much time to speak with so many clients. Yeah. So what does scaling a business look like? Is it adding on more counselors to your team? Is it just expanding the client base? What does that look like? Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there that there's a limitation of how many people you can see in a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so scaling does involve you know, expanding your clientele, maybe making it full-time work. I, I think I forgot to mention that I also work at a nonprofit with refugee and immigrant clientele. Amazing. Um, so I, I split that work with my private practice. Mm-hmm. But uh, the scaling could look like growing your clients. It could look like moving up into kind of a higher position in terms of supervision. Mm-hmm. So it's not limited to clientele, but supervising other counselors. It could look like scaling your education. So specializing in different modalities. Um, there's a couple I have in mind that I'd like to further Kind of expand my knowledge base with, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then and it could also, like you mentioned, uh, mean collaborating, having a team of counselors under kind of a same value set or mission goal. 
mm-hmm. and making that a little bigger. So there, there are opportunities out there. And does full-time counseling, is that a nine to five or does that go beyond that eight hour slot? Um, if you're working for yourself, it, it can really be what you like it to be. Okay. Um, the nonprofit I job, job that I currently work at is nine to five. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other departments within that organization that do a little bit more of a um, fit the client's need schedule, mm-hmm. which could look like a kind of like a later start, like a 12 to eight yeah. weekend work, um, usually because that's when people are more free. That kind of scared me in the beginning, mm-hmm. but I'm working Saturdays now and I like it because I figured, I finally figured out that I have nothing better to do on a Saturday morning or afternoon. And it's a nice realization. Better than the rock climbing. Yeah, better than that. That's for sure. Uh, my, my ankle would attest to that because that's how I rolled it. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it can be kind of a, what you want it to be in terms of schedule. In the beginning, you might find you don't have that flexibility mm-hmm. just to accommodate the client's needs. But I know counselors that work in the daytime have full caseloads and a wait list. So yeah. anything's kind of possible here. Awesome. So we're we're heading towards the end of today's episode for the podcast. Um, we like to end off every podcast with what we call the random five. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'll just ask you five totally random questions just so the listeners can get to know you better. Um, so the first one is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book. Okay. Two come to mind. So... I'm very hesitant to call this a book, but the Japji Sahib Steek by Santeja Singhji is one that comes to my mind because it's only 40 pages. It's very small, but it's very dense. Like reading each body of that had me thinking for days. And I think it's essential to obviously understand Japji Sahib and get the name Mm -hmm. as much money as you can. But um, that book, I feel like everyone should read that once. It has some very interesting insights. Uh, the other one that's non-Sikhi related that just comes to mind, it's not my favorite, but it's just present with me now, is uh, How to Win Friends and Inf- Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, just for essential communication skills, mm-hmm. uh, it'll take you a long way in life. Really? Um, uh, yeah, and it's an easy read, and it's filled with lots of stories and examples, so it's not dry, in my opinion. So yeah, I would say that that's up there. I've had that on my shelf for I think a year and a half now, but I haven't read it. Oh yeah. Maybe. So maybe maybe I'll move that. Up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, very interesting because Benit Singh also mentioned that the Japji Sabstik by Sante Jasingji was one of his top choices. Oh really? As well. So maybe well, maybe it's a BC thing. I gotta look into that. I gotta look <laughs> maybe, into that. Maybe steep. it is. <laughs> um, next question is: What is your favorite quote and or Bani Pankti? Whoa, this this is a tough one. Oh man. It always is. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Can, can you really pick? Ah. Um, I I would say Japji Sahib in general. Okay. Uh, I guess that's a bit of a bias there. So that book is the favorite one there too. Um, one one uh, Bhangdi that's helped me and I felt like helped clients a lot is uh, one from Guru Gobind Singh Ji Maharaj. Aage samaj chalo nandalala paache jo biti so biti. The I- idea that Maharaj is advising by Nandalaji to look forward, mm-hmm. whatever uh, seeds that you've planted in the past have been planted. You just look beyond that now. It's okay. And in terms of kind of the hurdles to 
accessing resilience, I think that's so crucial, that reminder, mm-hmm. especially when your guru is saying it. Exactly. It hits way harder. Yeah. Um, so that's when that, that resonates with me. Yeah, that's, sure. that's just rooted your entire practice in the Sikhi too. A mm-hmm. lot of, um, we, we fail to realize that so much of burning is so relevant. But it just, it, you just got to take that leap to actually explore it, to find Pankti. Like, I hadn't heard that Pankti before, but um, that's beautiful. Uh, next question is, what is one of your weird quirks? Um, weird quirks. Wow. Spoiled for choice here. <laughs> um, for some reason, whenever I am talking on the phone, I can't sit still. I have to be walking. That's a lot of us. (laughs) Is that is is that is that okay? I just recently learned that that's a very common thing. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I don't know why. Yeah, I know. Like my job is to sit and talk to people, but I have no temptation to walk up and walk around. If I'm on the phone, I can't sit still. I'm Mm. really glad that you normalized that (laughs) because I thought it was a problem. To be honest, I was just can't. I can't do it. Interesting. Uh, Next question is: If you could meet anyone in history, who would it be? Okay, so I feel like obviously Guru Sahib is is going to be everyone's answer. <laughs> yeah. So just knowing that you know, and that's not a cop out, of course, but I'm just going to challenge myself to think if it was beyond Guru Sahib, then it would be Guru Sikhs. But the, other than kind of prominent Sikh figures, I would say it would be my Dadaji, just because I've never met him before. Mm-hmm. He passed before. Uh, I was born um, just to see what what he's all about. Heard a lot about him. Must be an interesting guy. Um, But like, of course, if I had the choice, it's going to be Guru Gobind Singh Ji and many, many other Guru Sikhs. That would take, that's a whole other podcast on itself. That's fair. (laughs) And the last question is, what's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve? Um, I don't know. Man, I... I think, I think it might be um, <laughs> ironic, but a one-sided conversation. Now, I don't say that in the, to- in the, in the context of counseling because it's a very different way that you're approaching that. Mm-hmm. When, you're having, when you're meeting someone for the first time, I feel like if they're only invested in talking about things about themselves and they don't lend the opportunity mm-hmm. for someone else to share it raises some questions for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit of a pet peeve. I feel like I'm going to regret that as saying as a counselor, <laughs> but I've said it now. Um, before we end off today, is there anything that you want to leave with our listeners? Um, I think one thing that's come off from our conversation that I felt really important was um, that idea that, you know, we need more good counselors out there. And for anyone who's listening to this that might have some reservations or some fears, uh, I just really hope what I've shared in some way contributes to you fulfilling even considering that. That would be more than enough. And um, I'm grateful for this opportunity. So thank you so much for this, this wonderful conversation. Awesome. So thank you so much for sharing your story and being so open on this third season of the Experience to Keep podcast. Um, to all listeners, we'll be releasing more episodes as they come in, but this entire season is dedicated towards exploring different professions that hopefully many of you will pursue. Hopefully this 
episode answered a lot of questions about clinical counseling and just the practice in general, that um, everyone's journey isn't necessarily always a straight line and that that could end up being a very good thing. So again, thank you so much, Param V saying we'll end it off here. You've been listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast. 